0: Hello, you're listening to the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo and you can find us online at writerscentre.com.au We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our present are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing, and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Williams from the Australian Writers Centre. Today we're speaking to Ashley Hay. Ashley is a Brisbane-based author of both fiction and non-fiction books. Her latest novel is The Railwayman's Wife a story set in the New South Wales coastal town of The Rule in the years following World War II. Ashley's first novel, The Body in the Clouds, was nominated for several awards when it was published in 2010, including the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. She has also written four books of narrative non-fiction, and her essays, short stories and journalism regularly appear in Australian journals and anthologies. She has had stories published in The Monthly Magazine, The Bulletin, Best Australian Essays and Heat. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for calling. Uh,
1: Now, first of all, just tell us a bit about the latest novel, The Railway Man's Wife.
2: Uh, It's a story about a woman who's living on the south coast of New South Wales just after the Second World War. She is the railwayman's wife of the title. She loses her husband in an accident uh, quite early in the book. And as part of her compensation for this, she's offered the job of the librarian in the Railway Institute Library. So the book looks at about a year of her life after that and looks at the ways in which she tries to make sense of her world and also the ways in which a couple of specific other people in the town, two men who were just back from the Second World War, are also trying to make sense of the world for themselves.
1: Mm. Um, So the book is set in Thurul on the New South Wales South Coast and that's also where you grew up.
2: It is. It's also um, a place with a particular kind of literary heritage, I guess, because it's also the place where B.H. Lawrence wrote Kangaroo. Um, So that also feeds into my book in some ways. It sort of seems important. To acknowledge if you were going to kind of have the chutzpah to think you could set another book into rule when someone had done it extremely well almost a hundred yeah. years ago, um it seemed to me that you had to had to kind of make that part of the narrative in a way
1: yeah i because I did wonder if you know that, that there were are there inspirations for you to set the book into rule um and I guess some people would be a bit surprised to learn that d H Lawrence wrote this book. in a tiny little country town in in Australia.
2: I know. Look, I think from all the research that I did about how DH Lawrence came to be in Surul and it's a place I'm extremely fond of because it's you know the sort of landscape of my childhood. But it's it's you know it's nowhere in particular in that way. I think it was really coincidence. He arrived with not very much money, and what he wanted was to find a house he could rent for a couple of months. And what he did, because he was D.H. Lawrence, was immediately sit down and write a book. He was incredibly prolific. Um, so I think it's interesting that Thoreau's appearance in this novel is almost coincidental in a way. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the best parts of uh, Kangaroo's writing are the descriptions of the place, and they still... Are very recognisable as this particular landscape today. It's got a very distinct landscape. That part of the world there is an incredibly narrow plain of land that sort of pushes in between quite a high escarpment, the Illawarra escarpment, and the ocean. And so I think by the time it reaches Cyril, the plain is a few kilometres wide, but no more than that. And it, it sort of narrows and tapers as it heads further north so it's quite a dramatic um setting and i think one of the things that always interested me when i was growing up when i wondered if it would be possible to be a writer and then as i found stories to tell i always wanted to try to write about that place because it seems to me to be quite beautiful and when i started thinking about this particular story of you know this woman and this time and everything that is happening to her um, it became pretty clear that this was the setting that it, it had to have and then I had to find a way of making sense of D.H. Lawrence poking his nose in every so often.
1: Yeah, yeah. It is a beautiful part of the world. I've I've been down there myself. Um, and your descriptions as well are quite stunning, your descriptions of the landscape and coming through the train tunnel and, and all that sort of thing. So were those descriptions... Did you have to revisit Theroux a lot or was it something that was kind of there in your memory?
2: Look, I think those descriptions are pretty much burned into the, you know, retina of my mind, but I do still visit a lot. So mm. my family has a weird kind of um, provenance. Both of my fa- parents were born in Theroux and they still live in Ostamir, which is just the next village up. So I grew up there. I haven't lived there for 25 years, but I go back a lot because I go back to see my mum and dad. Um, so in one sense I could probably have written those descriptions without being there, but I am still I am still a really regular visitor to that place. And I suppose that's part of it that you know, there were moments, there's a scene in the book um where Annie, the railwayman's wife, is walking along the beach and she sees a man fishing on the rocks and she sees some surfers just beyond that. And there were little moments like that where they were specific um, sort of atmospheres or specific situations that I saw while I was writing the book that I, you know, then then borrowed and and stuck into its fiction. But I'm sure that there were also a lot of other things that um, I was remembering from my childhood and, you know, that I was remembering from 30, almost 40 years ago.
1: So, um, obviously, it is a work of fiction, mm-hmm. um but you know based in a very real period of history, and obviously yeah. a very real place.
0: Mm-hmm. What about
1: the characters? Are they um influenced at all by real people or real events
2: um the The sort of narrative arc of the story um was sparked by that actual incident. My father's father was a railwayman and he was killed on the railways. And my father's mother was offered the job of the railway librarian in compensation for this. And I'd always been really fascinated by this story. I thought it was really amazing that in the, you know, kind of late 1940s, early 1950s, um, an institution like the railways would offer this incredibly pragmatic compensation to a woman who'd been widowed. And um, that kind of, you know, was niggling away at the back of my imagination I guess and then I started to think about the fact that this had happened just after the second world war my grandfather hadn't gone to the war because he worked on the railways so there was that sense that then it would have been a different kind of loss he would come through this period of time when a lot of women would have seen their men go away and would almost have expected them not to come back and so this this accident, this kind of a random death must have felt a different thing through the prism of those six years of war. And the thing that really started me, um, imagining a librarian, imagining a woman in this position, was when probably eight or ten years ago the the building where the Railway Institute Library was is still there. It's still on the side of Cyril Station. And one Heritage Week or History Week or something like that, the people who kind of worked to preserve it and restore it, had asked my dad to go down and talk about what he remembered about the library and his mum's job there. And I went along to listen to him talk. And while he was talking about, you know, remembering the shelves and remembering the way the books used to come down in boxes from Sydney and remembering the garden that was outside and things like that, this enormous train went through um, outside. And it was literally just the platforms away from the library itself. And I suddenly started to think about the kind of other side of this compensation that my grandmother had been offered, which was it was fantastic that she had a job, but this job put her in the way of this noise, the noise of this thing that had killed her husband and I think once I'd kind of had that idea, um it really started to it really started to form in my mind, so I spoke to my father, and I wanted to be very clear with him that I didn't want to write the story of his parents. What I wanted to do was to borrow this accident and this incident as the job afterwards and try to imagine something from that. But that said, you know, writers are horrible, um, appropriators, honourable thieves, I think is the polite term for it. I hope we're honourable. Um, and so I know that I did then borrow other bits and pieces of, uh, my childhood memories, of stories that my parents had told me about their childhoods in Sioux things that I remembered from um, my two grandmothers and my other grandfather who also all lived in the Falls. I know that I sort of appropriated bits and pieces of moments and um, situations and biography to I guess if these characters seem at all whole, I think it's those contributions that kind of helped
1: to happen somehow. Sure, yeah. So um, just more on your process of writing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So your first novel, uh, The Body in the Clouds, um, was a huge critical success. It was shortlisted for lots of awards. Mm-hmm. Did that impact the way you approached writing your second novel? Did you have a bit more confidence when you went into this latest project?
0: Um,
2: I did. What I thought at the time was a very... Uh, foolish thing, but actually it was probably quite good, and when I was working on the earliest draft of The Body in the Clouds, I'd written some non-fiction books before that, and I had this sort of, I think I was really excited to try and write a novel, and I quit my full-time job to do it, and I sort of thought, great, I'll get a draft of this novel done in a year. That'll be fantastic. And so I applied, at the end of that year, I applied to start working on The Railwayman's Wife*. Um, under the auspices of the Doctorate of Creative Arts at the University of Technology, and I got accepted. But the problem was, of course, novels take a little bit longer to write. So when I got accepted to start The Railwayman's Wife, I hadn't finished, I wasn't anywhere near finished, The Body in the Clouds. And I actually wrote the two books in tandem for a while, and that seemed mad and, um, you know, (laughs) kind of... You know, it's hard enough having one novel in your head, let alone two. And, I mean, Body in the Clouds has quite a complex Structure that runs over three very different periods of time and, you know, Rowena's life jumps around a bit too. So um, I did sort of think it was a bit crazy and I went off and had a baby in the middle of it as well. But what was really great was that by the time I finished The Body in the Clouds and it was published, I had a really strong manuscript for the second book. So I I didn't have that kind of hiccup that I think a lot of writers have if they're fortunate enough to find a publisher that um, loves the book, and if they're fortunate enough to kind of have some sort of success with their first novel, I think it must be a very daunting thing to kind of take a breath and sit down and get on to the next one. But I already had most of the next one sitting there, and that made it that had made it a much more enjoyable process. I could sort of work on one solidly for six months or so and then put it away and take a complete break for it and work on the other one and so it's not a working method that I would advocate and I would probably never do it again but it worked really well in the context of those two books and in the context of just helping me to get over what I think might have been a hard thing of starting a whole new
1: you mentioned that you were writing non-fiction before uh, you started on the novels. What prompted the switch? And was that a difficult process to switch from non-fiction to fiction?
2: Um, I think when I was growing up and was wondering if it might be possible to be a writer and how you went about being one, um, there were no sort of dedicated creative writing courses in the way that there are now. You couldn't do creative writing as part of your HSC the way you can now. So I decided um, that I'd go and do a journalism degree, and I thought if I did a journalism degree, I might be able to get a job as a journalist, and I could, you know, sort of get paid to write in that way, and work out if I could do this other stuff on the side. And I think I began working on narrative non-fiction books because that seemed quite a natural extension from journalism. And I had a publisher, Duffy and Snellgrove, who were interested in that kind of narrative nonfiction form. And I thought, oh, well, this is a fantastic sort of training to to write books that I'm interested in writing, but also to kind of learn what 60,000 words feels like or how you kind of structure something that's not a 5,000-word essay or a 2,000-word feature article or something like that. But I always wanted to write fiction and I always wanted to try and tell stories. That way. And then, um, I think I got to a certain point where I had the initial ideas for The Body in the Clouds. And I thought this seemed like a good sort of, um, fictional project to try. And one of the reasons that I liked it was because I think I'm a fairly tentative person. And so because there was so much historical research in Body in the Clouds, it's set in 1788 when the first fleet arrived in Sydney. It's set around 1930 when the Harbour Bridge is being built and then it's got a contemporary setting as well. But I could sort of trick myself into starting the novel because I could go off and do all the historical research that I was really comfortable about doing, that I sort of knew how to find what I was looking for and and I could sort of start writing the novel almost while I wasn't watching. So again, I kind of got over the really fearful beginning part without paying the kind of attention to it that might completely cripple you when you were... Trying to get underway. And then with The Railwayman's Wife, again, because it was, well, partly because its early drafts um, were written as part of the doctorate, and partly because it's, it's a, I I suppose it is a, an historical novel in that way. Again, I kind of had this research that I could um, jump into to sort of help me make the book, but also get me into the process of, of writing the book.
1: On the research, is that, it sounds like that's something you quite enjoy doing. Um, how how much research is involved in a project like the Railway Railwayman's wife?
2: Um, I do love it. I really love sort of snooping around in old stuff and and I love I love the things that you find that are so perfect for what you're trying to make that you, you don't know you've sort of been looking for out of those kind of serendipitous moments in research. Um the Railwayman's wife, because I did it as I say, because I wrote the early drafts of it as part of a doctorate Um, that manuscript had to be supported by an exegesis which I wrote as a set of three essays sort of exploring different elements of research. So I probably did more research because I had to write the exegesis than I would necessarily have done just if I'd sat down and and wrote the manuscript of the novel on its own. But I did... It was interesting. I thought I would find it really easy to write about Turul because it is a really familiar place but I found it quite difficult and so... One way that I found to get around that was I went back and read scientific papers that talked about surreal, so things of, you know, particular sightings of birds or particular worms that had been found that hadn't been found, you know, anywhere else outside of Antarctica or sort of quite specific things like that to sort of try to um, get round the issues I was having about describing this place. And one of the best kinds of research that um, I did for The Railway Men's Wife, it is a book, you know, kind of necessarily about trains in a lot of ways. And I did, you know, go to the... There's a great railway history association that has a lot of material and there are some really specific um, things that have been written about the Illawarra Railways. But one of the best things was, because I had this sum in the middle of all of this, And he is a completely Thomas the Tank Engine obsessed child. Oh right. So I spent all this time reading those Thomas the Tank Engine books to him and they were fantastic because they just had all this language in them about, you know, all the specific parts of trains and railways and, you know, all the bits and pieces of track and rolling stock and they were, you know, brilliant and also gave me the illusion that I was working on the book at some subconscious level while I was, you know, sitting there reading for the third time that day about Percy and Thomas going off and delivering something or, you know, getting lost somewhere. So that was, I really, you have to thank my son for putting me onto such a brilliant source of (laughs) railway language.
1: Fancy that, yeah, and so unexpected too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So... Given that in the past you've had quite a varied writing life, obviously with the journalism, the Mm non-fiction and the the novels, Um, so do you have a daily writing routine you stick to? Do you need to put strategies in place to deal with all these different kinds of projects?
2: Um, I have a really different working life at the moment because I've got a four-year-old son, so he's in kindy three days a week, so I have three solid days where I can work and so... I just tend to sit down when he goes at about eight o'clock in the morning and go at whatever needs doing until he comes home at five o'clock at night because I know that the other days of the week, um, you know, I'm going to be doing things with him. I am. I usually I like working on journalism because writing a novel takes a lot of time and there's a nice kind of um, you know, quicker gratification that you get out of being able to sit down and write fifteen hundred words for someone and know that it's going to be published in a month's time rather than, you know, three years away when you when you finally get it over the line. So I've always sort of liked um, juggling those things. But that said, I've been working on my third novel. Um I spent I said last year working on the first draft of this. And the beginning of this year has been sort of pretty full of journalism and I've been really lucky. The Railwayman's Life, you know, sort of got a lot of attention and, and enabled me to go to a lot of places and talk to a lot of people about it and it's, it's kept me very busy in that way. But I found in the past couple of months, I've just really been desperate to get back to the, to the next book. And so I'm thinking that in the next half of this year, what I want to try to do is, for the first time, and if I can actually hold myself to it, is stop a lot of the journalism and just really focus on the fiction. It's I love writing it. I love the kind of freedom of fiction. I love the stuff that allows you to play around with. And I'm not sure that I could say I didn't want to do journalism again, but at the moment I'm just feeling a bit um, too removed from the process of fiction. So I want to try to devote myself to that and then... You know, we'll see. We'll see what happens after that.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, with your next novel, is there anything you're going to do differently? Obviously, it's going to be just the one novel
2: you're working on this time.
1: (laughs) Um, Yes. Are you excited about that? Are you going to approach it any differently to the the way you did the others?
2: I thought that it was going to be. um, I thought it was going to be an entirely contemporary novel. I thought that it was going to be. Um, just based now. Um, it's It'll be the first novel that I've actually written about the place that I'm in because I finished both The Woman's Wife, which is set in rural, and The Body in the Clouds, which is set in Sydney. I finished both of those while I was living in Brisbane. So I was really interested to write a book about Brisbane while I was in Brisbane, and as my husband promised it, um, you know, he wouldn't get a job somewhere else and lose me, so I'm hoping I can sit still and do this one. So that's sort of interesting, but I thought it was going to be a completely contemporary book, and when I started working on it, I realised very quickly that there were characters um, from a slightly earlier time that were going to come in. So it's now set uh, sort of in the early 1960s and in the present. So the thing that I thought I was going to do extremely differently was, you know, undone before I'd got about a quarter of a way through the draft. Um, So that's been interesting. And I don't know, in terms of structure, um, this book seems to be forming, um, I don't know, each chapter sort of rather than being one kind of flowing narrative, each chapter seems to be, Quite a long and distinct, almost short story, and they all, you know, kind of interrelate to each other. Um, I'm not. I haven't looked at it for about six months now, so I might open up the file and just think, oh, I don't know if that works at all. But that's what it was looking like in December last year. And also, my um, writing life will change after next year because my son will go to school, so I'll get, you know, my whole the sort of shape of days will change and things like that. And I think. There was something, there's been something really great about having these three very long focus days to just kind of run very hard at something and I don't know how that's influenced the shape of what's there in the first draft as well. But um, I did come up with an idea for the novel after that recently but I'm being really disciplined and not letting myself even think about it until I go back and do the second draft of the first book because I don't want to get myself back in that, you know, two-pronged situation again, I don't think the are family in Sydney. Thing.
1: Sure. Um, just one final question. Do you have any advice for budding authors?
2: Oh, um, I think one of the really interesting things about writing, I taught a workshop at the Sydney Writers' Festival just this past year, which was about getting around blocks and, you know, problems and hiccups and that sort of thing. And it was interesting to sort of think about it and it was interesting to put it together and, you know, the people who did it seemed to kind of get a lot out of it. But the thing that intrigued me about writing is that the only thing you can do is to write. You know, the only way that you can write a novel is to write the novel. It's not that you might write a great novel the first time through. In fact, you almost certainly won't. But you've just got to keep writing and drafting and, you know, reshaping and editing doing the writing is the only way to get the writing done in that way, which sounds so sort of obvious. But I like that about it because if you do get stuck on something, you can just keep kind of working at it and trying different approaches and the actual writing itself is the one tool that you have. And if you enjoy it, then it makes the job really enjoyable. Um so yeah, I don't know, it sounds it sounds like a really um obvious thing, but it, it interests me that lots of people say, Oh, you know, I need to have time I need to have this sort of inspiration, I need to wait for all these things to be in the right place. And it's like, well, you can wait for all of that to be true. Or you can think, if I want to sit down and write, then all I have to do is sit down and write. And that sort of seems a bit more of an enabling thing because as I say, you might not get something that you think is Fabulous, and most of the time you probably won't. But at least then you've got something to work with, or even just throw away and think, "Well, that's so clearly not what I'm trying to do." So I think that's kind of encouraging that it's, you know, it's it's this one tool, and if you keep at it, yeah, you, you can you can make all sorts of things at the other end of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's excellent advice. Um, thank you so much for speaking to us today, Ashley, and good luck with this latest book. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the team from the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Ku. You can find us online at writerscentre.com.au and discover details about our courses, seminars and popular online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's Valerie, K-H-O-O Thank you for listening.